0: Revelation chapter one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified by it his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John to the seven churches which are in Asia Grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. He cometh it with clouds and every eye shall see him and they also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega the first and the last. And what thou seest write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about his paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice, as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at my, at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive for evermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlestick, candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. And hast borne and and hast patience and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless... I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate." He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Please be seated. Good morning. Good morning.
1: This has been a Difficult text for me personally. I'll just say that right up front. I feel much like Paul spoke about being chief of sinners. But I find myself uh thankful that the word of god is sharp thank you well i'd like to pray before we start heavenly father we thank you for your great love that caused you to send jesus pay the penalty for our sins, we give you praise and thanks for that and recognize that it was for your great and wise plans that that you did this, but it was also out of infinite love. We pray that you would speak to our hearts and where there is any uh, lack or any coldness that you would breathe life. Bring that sharp double-edged sword to bear our hearts that we may see what you already see and yield to you and experience that marvelous grace. I ask that your word would go forth in power, power that is of your spirit and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In one of the discussions uh, we are having about this text, it was suggested that we were kind of parachuting, as it were, into uh, chapters 2 and 3 to look at the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia over the next seven weeks. And we're not going to look in detail at the first chapter in great detail because we want to get To and to understand the heart of the message to the churches and how it applied to the church to which it was written and how it might apply to us today. But we will need to take note of a few things in the first chapter that impact how we view and understand chapters 2 and 3. Some of it is just some simple observations, but uh, there are a couple of things that we'll probably need to. Probably need to pause at. <clears throat> the book was written by John, most likely John the Apostle, the disciple of Jesus, who was apparently exiled on the island of Patmos because of his Christian testimony. We find that in verse 9. All this is, for the moment is from chapter 1. The island of Patmos is near the west coast of Asia Minor. It seems to have been one of several Roman penal colonies, in use at the time where political or religious prisoners might be held indefinitely without trial. Kind of like their version of Gitmo. Most scholars date the book about 95 A.D. The source of the revelation is the Lord Jesus Christ, who appeared to John and told him to write what he was about to see and hear in a book and sent it to the seven churches in Asia, mentioned by name, verse 11. What John was to see was a revelation of Jesus Christ, given to him by God the Father, revealing things which must shortly take place. That's in verse 1. In verses 12 through 16, then, Jesus appeared to John in a vision of blazing glory as the son of man in the midst of seven golden lampstands. I'll be using the term lampstand from the New King James here that I'll be reading from. And and he was holding seven stars in his right hand. Then in verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars and the seven lampstands is revealed. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is straightforward. They were already named in verse 11. The seven stars... Says, are the seven angels of the seven churches, which still leaves some mystery, doesn't it? Certainly did for me. The word for angel means messenger. There are at least three possibilities that have been put forward, different ones, about the angels of the seven churches. One, it could be heavenly messengers. Two, earthly messengers or ministers or three personifications of the prevailing spirit of each church while acknowledging the ambiguity here about the precise nature of these angels to the churches we are going to move beyond that concern because the letters are written to the churches we can see that not only from verse 11 which says the book of john is the book john is to write is to be sent to the seven churches, but also from examination of the texts of the letters to the churches, which address church members, their actions and attitudes, and situations in the world around them. So then knowing the mystery of the lampstands is really what helps us, because in the first letter in particular, the letter to the church of Ephesus, the meaning of the lampstand plays a central role. Also, verse 19 deserves attention because of multiple possible interpretations. The Lord says to John, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. We believe that the most straightforward understanding of this verse is the literal one, especially given its placement right before the letters to the churches, which are then followed by further visions in chapter 4. And beyond We can note also, in chapter four, it begins with a voice saying to John, "Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this." That's the very phrase used in verse 19 and chapter one. Therefore, we will proceed with the following understanding of verse 19: One, the things which you have seen, refer to the things which John has just seen in his vision so far. The things which are, or some translation would say what is now, refers to the present things, which specifically then applies to the letters to the churches, which are dealing with their present states. And then three, the things which will take place after this, refers to future events, beginning with chapter 4, where those words are repeated. So with that background... Begin looking at chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. The Lord identifies himself as the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. It's as if he's saying, These lampstands, these churches are mine. I am watching over them and moving among them. It's interesting to note there, there's some common elements in all of these letters. So we'll just mention it right now that, and this is the Lord speaking on all these cases, in all these letters. He begins with some description of himself. That tends to be in particular you know, applicable to the letter that he's writing. And then he starts out with, in verse 2, I know your works. Those very words are said in every single one of these seven letters. It's not surprising. (laughs) He knows all. Everything is laid bare before him. But he says that, and we need to take note of that. There's nothing that he doesn't see inside or out. So he says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And verse 3, and you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Who among us would not like to hear such words from our Lord? Hair white as wool, his eyes blazing fire. I I can think of a lot worse words to hear. I want to stop here for a minute, for several minutes, and at this point in this text in chapter 2, and I want to look at some background in the church of Ephesus. What kind of church is this that would get that kind of proclamation said? Now, we know what's coming in verse 4, but let's look first at verse 2 and 3. Ephesus. Understanding the historical background and beginnings of the church in Ephesus will shed additional light on the significance of this text, the letter from the Lord Jesus Christ to his church in Ephesus in 95 A.D. Ephesus was the most important city in Western Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. It was the capital of provincial Asia and the warden of the temple of the Roman goddess Artemis, or Diana. It became a major commercial center because of its location at the intersection of major land and sea trade routes. In the book of Acts, we see that Ephesus was used by Paul and his co-workers as a hub for evangelism. We probably know more about the founding of the church of Ephesus than any other Gentile church in the first century. Now, the Corinthian church tends to stand out to us as far as how much is said because of two long, full letters, (laughs) full of lots of problems that Paul was dealing with. Yet, in Acts, the narrative of Paul's ministry in Corinth is given only two or three paragraphs. By contrast, the narrative of Paul's ministry to the Ephesians is given two or three pages. So, there's a lot we can know just from the book of Acts. We first see Ephesus in the latter half of the 18th chapter of Acts. If you wish, you can you can follow along, but I'm, I'm not going to be mentioning too much in terms of specific verses uh, except for a couple of pas- passages I'll read. Because of the sheer number of pages that this would take, there's no way that we're going to read this, uh, all of it verbatim, but, but I just want to just kind of hit the highlights through the Acts passage. Paul stopped by Ephesus as he was approaching the end of his second missionary journey. He spent only a few days there, reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue. They wanted him to stay longer, but because he was set on reaching Jerusalem for the coming feast, he did not stay, saying that he would return if the Lord willed. Then, toward the beginning of his third missionary journey, Paul came back to Ephesus. This is probably around 54 AD. Then the whole 19th chapter of Acts is dedicated to Paul's ministry there. Previous to Paul's arrival, Apollos had been there, speaking boldly in the synagogue. Though Apollos was eloquent and mighty in the scriptures, it says, and taught the way of the Lord accurately, he only knew the baptism of John. So, Paul found some disciples, but they were untaught and few in number, only 12 men. But that's a pretty good number of men to start with, isn't it? Right away, Paul began to lay a solid foundation in the lives of the believer there. He also spoke boldly in the synagogue for three months, persuading many to believe. Eventually, some Jews refused to believe, began to publicly speak evil of the way, and he withdrew the disciples and reasoned daily in the school of Tyrannus for the next two years. This was a quite a lengthy stay for Paul. At this point, it's two years and three months. So that's, that's about the total of his stay. It's not known exactly. But during that time, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. Sick were healed. Evil spirits were cast out. At one point, when the seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest... Tried to exercise an evil spirit, quote, by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. The evil spirit said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? At that point, the man with the evil spirit overpowered, stripped, and wounded them. This became known throughout Ephesus, and the name of the Lord was magnified as a result. Many who had practiced magic confessed and repented publicly. Making a huge bonfire of their evil books. Verse 20 says that the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. The whole surrounding region of Asia was so turned right side up over those two plus years that the local silver craftsmen in Ephesus, whose business of making silver images of the Roman goddess was dropping off sharply, and they started a major citywide riot. After the uproar ceased, Paul departed for Macedonia. So quite a start for the church in Ephesus. Then in Acts 20, when Paul was heading back toward Jerusalem, he sent to Ephesus, calling for the elders to come to him at Miletus, a nearby city. The last half of the chapter is Paul's address to the Ephesian elders, which I'd like to read. The heart of his admonition to them is in verses 28 through 36. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore watch, and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Again, this, what we're doing here is just a, a survey over the footprint of Ephesus in Acts and, and now the epistles to come to understand a little more about the church in Ephesus through its beginning and also this address by Paul warning them of what was to come, that there would be struggles, there would be false teachers, there would be wolves. Several years later, Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesian church, probably around 60 AD. Most likely while he was in house arrest at Rome. The Ephesian letter contains some of the richest passages on the eternal purposes of God, the nature of our salvation by grace through faith, the purpose of the church and God's provision for her maturity, and practical instruction for walking in a manner worthy of our calling in relationships in the church, individual families, and the world around. It is remarkably free, this letter, Divisions of corrective admonitions for serious error, like you would see in Corinthians letters. It would seem from the letter that the church in Ephesus was on solid footing and thriving. So that would be consistent pretty much with the picture you get in Acts. Six years later, they're still thriving. Three to five years later, then, Paul wrote his first letter to Timothy. Timothy is in Ephesus at this point. The letter has much practical instruction on worship, leadership, and relationships in the church. But Paul begins the letter by reminding Timothy that he had left him in Ephesus to deal with some within the church who were spreading false teaching and causing disputes. 1 Timothy 1, verse 3 and 5. As I urged you, when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Note especially this verse, verse 5. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. About three years later, Paul wrote to Timothy again in Ephesus with further instruction and warning against false teachers who were creating strife by ignorant disputes. He exhorted Timothy to be diligent to correct them in humility. Paul had these words for Timothy in chapter 1, verse 7 and 13 and 14. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Hold fast the patterns of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Note the emphasis on love and that the ability to keep these things is by the power of the Spirit within. We have none ourselves. So, Now, if we return to chapter 2, having seen some picture of the church in Ephesus, that's the church that received these words in verses 2 and 3. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered and and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. So, through Paul's establishing the church, through his letter to them, and then through two letters to Timothy in Ephesus, there's been some effect. They have been responding to these potential problems, the beginnings of problems. They have even tested some. They do not allow someone that's evil, and someone that's claiming something that they cannot Demonstrate by their lives, they are testing them and finding them liars. So, in essence, they've been following those instructions in the letters. Verse 4 Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. That is so devastating. Isn't it? This love, as you, most of you will know, this is the word agape. It's God's own unique love. His love is to be in us, motivating us at all times. The first and great commandment Mark 12:30, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Matthew 20, 40, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everything else depends on this our love for God, agape love for God, something that He births in us, and then something that we give back to Him as we follow Him. Active participation. Obviously because He's now saying what He has against the Ephesian churches, they've left their first love. It was expected that they would continue in it. 1 Corinthians 13, first three verses says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. going to read several scriptures continuing this way with maybe an occasional comment, but I just want to let the Word of God speak. In John chapter 5 verses 39 through 42 he's speaking to the Jews after some conversation that seemed to start out okay but then got tense as they began to stiffen. He says, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. Now, these are they which did not have the love of God in them to start here, but It's obviously possible to, in the words of this letter from Jesus, to the church at Ephesus, to leave your first love. I'd like to present a thought that I had about this verse I just read in John 5. Knowing and loving the scriptures is not a substitute for knowing and loving God. It is not an either-or issue. It's not one versus the other. But one clearly comes first, does it not? Loving God comes first here in John 5. It comes first here in Revelation 2. It also comes first in John 15, verses 4 through 8. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, can you see the correlation here? Does not abide in me. You start, you're a branch. You do not continue abiding. Anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me, now this, listen to this phrase, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done by you. In the previous two verses, right, underscored, it says, abide in me, and I in you, in verse 4. And then two verse, uh, next verse, 5, he who abides in me, and I in him. But this time it says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. So right here in the text, you have... First, it's I in you, Jesus, the life of Christ in you first. Then, my words abide in you, and there's going to be fruit from that. Without him, though, there is no fruit. You can do nothing without him. First is the life of Christ, active, pursuing him, returning love, walking on in it. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Our love for God is rooted in His love for us, and we are to abide there in His love. The next several verses, 19 through, or 9 through 17, continues on in this theme. As the Father loved me, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Jesus is our perfect example of how to abide in his love. He holds himself as the example by looking at how he abided in the Father's love. He is our example as we walk as he walked, which is a command as well in 1 John. We will have wonderful, sweet fellowship, and there will be fruit from our lives that glorifies the Father. As we look at Him, we will be changed from glory to glory. Remember 2 Corinthians 3.18. We need to keep our focus on Christ. Loving Him and observing how that He abided in the Father. John 13, verse 34 and 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We know that we are created for good works in Christ. We're to let our light shine before men, that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. But it is love for one another that truly identifies us as his disciples, according to these verses. Just another way of underscoring that there is... The love of God imparted to us in Christ must remain active and number one. It must be the driving force what motivates us. A, uh, the words of one of the uh, prophecies, uh, a well springing up First John 419 through uh, chapter five verse one. We love him because he first loved us. It's the heart of that, isn't it? If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For, who, for, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen. How can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And, ev- and everyone who loves him, who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. Speaking of the family of God now, that that is a natural outflow. As we are living in love of Christ, we will love those who are his. John 17, verse 25 and 26. These are, as far as the gospel of John is concerned, the last words of Jesus to his disciples before he went to the cross. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. So, from those verses, we get a picture of what our first love is. There's one additional verse that I missed that I want to pick up. When you think of first love, one of the things that might come to mind is a marriage, you know, the the sweetness, the, the freshness. This verse out of uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, part of verse 2, says, Go and proclaim it in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. And then it goes downhill from there. They left the first love. That's what the Lord is looking for. The devotion of your youth. Your love is a bride. His love, his agape love, is not something that ebbs and flows. It's inadequate. Well, you know, adequate one day and inadequate another. It's a well springing up. There are things that, obviously, there are things that we can do to inhibit that by neglect, but by its nature. I mean, it's the love of God. There's no end to its, there's no end to it. There's no end to its power. It's his depth. So, can it not be truly spoken that in God, the devotion of our youth, our love as a bride, could continue from day one and should? Yes, even we acknowledge we all stumble in many ways. Does that break our fellowship? And for a moment, yes. Does it keep going? Or can we return in a moment? Verse 4 in, in Revelation 2 did not come as a result, did it? Of a, a momentary, whoops, I, you know, I, I wasn't paying attention. I stumbled. I sinned. Is that a result in that? Or does that result in a long term judgment? I think we know. This had been in this state for a long time. In verse five, the first word is remember. If it had just happened, it wouldn't needed to do much remembering, would it? He's appealing to them to remember, to remember their first love, to remember the devotion of their youth. As we find from the commandments, the First, the greatest commandment, and the second that's like it. There are just two aspects in terms of our relationship with God. Loving Him, number one. Number two, loving the brethren. First John chapter three, verse eighteen and nineteen says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. By this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. That's a precious promise. When we are truly loving God and loving the brethren, we're assured that that is intended by God to to witness to us in our spirits that we are his. There are many scriptures that, that say that in a different way. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Paul, near the end of his life, he he says he knows that he's coming up on that. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. How could Paul be so assured? Was it because he worked harder than everyone else? He said that, didn't he? <laughs> It was true. He did. But was that why he was assured? No. He was assured because he loved the Lord. Because he loved the Lord, he longed for His appearing. Not only to me, me only, but also to all who have loved His appearing. That is an element. that, If, if we love God we will love His appearing. We will long for His return. The devotion of our youth. Can you imagine the love of a bride, a newlywed, longing for the bridegroom to come? Also in Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, there's this aspect that can... Start to look at some verses now that may talk about things that negatively affect our love. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Tell you, this was hurt bad this week. I have thought of so many things. I've stared at things that has weighed me down. I've needlessly added to a load that just weighs down, chips away. This is going to have to be an ongoing repentance and a asking God for mercy to help me. Get rid of those things. Sometimes we we can do things that weigh us down, and you can't just get a you know, immediately free. We'd like to be immediately free, wouldn't we? There's an endurance aspect, though. Scripture in Proverbs talks about, just with respect to uh, debt, to don't rest, free yourself like a bird out of the snare. That attitude, just keep going. Keep jerking at it. (laughs) Whatever it takes. But be alert, and if there are things that have weighed you down, as has me, Look for ways to free myself of that. Don't keep adding to it. First of all, you know, stop the adding to it, but then find ways to, to uh, get rid of those entanglements. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 10, verses 24 to 25. This speaks to... one another, an aspect of one another in regard to these things that would weigh us down. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembly, assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And Hebrews 13.3 it says exhorting one another daily. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. I find that one hard to accomplish. I find that it is in part because I'm weighed down. I'm asking God to help me to return to a first love, a freshness that that will not be satisfied with being weighed down. I may have to persist in getting loose. We need one another. We need one another's prayers. We need one another's exhortation daily. That's the Word of God. I wonder, while trying to recover something precious that was lost in some past generations, isn't that in a sense what we're, some of our thoughts, what we're trying to do? Certain aspects of our living, the way we've, we've ordered our lives and, and tried to reorder our thinking and our, our emphases, our, our priorities. It's because it's we see that generationally some things have, lo- have been lost, kind of in a gradual way accumulating entanglements. And as that happens, slowly cooling off. Hasn't it happened? Not only in our own lifetime, we have to acknowledge some ways, but generationally. And so we're trying to recover some of that. While trying to recover some of that, is it possible that we have so emphasized individual families that we have grown callous to the call of the Spirit to prepare and be ready as the bride of Christ? I wonder. I don't know, but I wonder. I would ask you to consider. Similar to what I had said earlier, pointed out that the Word of God said, I was just trying to point this out, that there is a priority. We love God. If we love God, we love His Word. And His Word bears fruit in our lives as we continue to to read, study, walk in His ways, obey His commands. But the love in our heart for God comes first. Nothing else must take its place. I believe we ought to consider that when the Lord speaks of the second commandment, it's likened to it. And then especially when you consider that his eternal purpose is to call ones to himself as a bride of Christ. It's probably pretty important to him. Maybe it's more important than things that could be identified as temporal. As good, as precious as he might be. Maybe we ought to consider eternal versus temporal. and Maybe consider whatever the Lord might bring to our minds about that. On this remembering and returning, we've been mostly considering our individual responsibility to abide in the love of God and love the brethren. But there is a corporate application here as well. Actually, the corporate application is the primary application in the text. This letter is written to the church. It's in first person. I should say first word, singular. Sorry, I'm bad on my grammar, Steve. (laughs) It's written to the church. Churches, of course, made up of individual believers. Yes. But the Lord is ready in this text to bring corporate judgment unless there is corporate repentance. Isn't that what the text indicates? Repent, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, or remember, I'm sorry. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. The lampstand is the church. It's hard to think about, but this is what it says. Let's consider what a lampstand is for. In Matthew 5, verse 13 to 16, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. There's several things here in this one passage that that have application here. There's the mention of the lampstand. It's also a city that is set on a hill. You may recall Ronald Reagan's use of the phrase, city set on a hill, he borrowed it from here. Uh, as a short aside, I might add that the sad truth is that if that was an application, that was appropriate, then there would also be an appropriate application of corporate judgment. I'm afraid that might apply quite well but I want to move on from there because that's not the true application here. Throughout the scriptures, the city of God, or Mount Zion, speaks of the church. There are a couple scriptures just to remind and support about that. Psalm 48. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth. is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. As we find throughout the Old Testament, there are are verses that are about the physical Jerusalem or the physical tabernacle or whatever. but, But those are shadows of the real thing. What's the real thing? The church, the city of God. a city that's set on a hill is not to be hidden. The light is to be put on a lampstand. Additionally, in Hebrews 12, this is made a little clearer. first part of verse 18 and then 23, 22 through 25. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire. But in verse 22 then, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. To God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. And then verse 25, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. So do you see the the connection then between verse 5 in Revelation 2 and Matthew 5, 13-16? The lampstand is meant to give light. We are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. But the other verse there, together with that, is Jesus is saying several things that were like the salt of the earth. If the salt... If as salt we lose our flavor, we're good for nothing else. Remember John 15. What happens if a branch doesn't abide in the vine? It's, it's good for nothing else. It's firewood. This is referring, though, corporately. Corporately. If we assault, lose our flavor, we're good for nothing else. It's a serious thing with God. He has a purpose for us. Our, his purpose it is not. It's not our selfish purposes or what could be our selfish purposes. We, we could easily just start relating to our temporal life and our, our, our needs and what we benefit from. We benefit from. From doing this or doing that or living this way or living that way, we benefit from from having a, a nice, comfortable church and you know, and, and people that are similar to us, and we have some you know camaraderie and rapport. Those things are great, but is that why we're here? We're here for His purpose. It's to bear fruit, to shine, and we can't do that if we're not abiding in Him. We're not abiding in Him. We can't do anything. It's a scary, or else here. In verse five, or else I'll remove the lampstand. Corporate judgment. Just, it, we exist. We exist individually, also corporately. We exist for His pleasure. Revelation four verse eleven. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive Glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. We exist for his pleasure. As sometimes said in the political realm, we could say it this way we exist at his discretion as well. If we don't remain in love, with the Lord Jesus Christ. At some point, he says this. I was talking about a little bit of this at home. As I usually do, I enjoy bouncing some things off my my children. A couple of them remembered something I'd forgotten. Once they told me, I kind of remembered a little snippet here and there. But most of you will know Greg Fowl. In early 2008, February, plus or minus, this would have been roughly two months after the beginning of the church in December of 2007, Greg Fowl spoke a word of warning. Very loosely paraphrased because I couldn't remember. You know, it was a long time ago, but it had basically these kind of elements. To be careful and diligent. or the Lord may say to us one day, us, this church, I know your works. I think these are some of the things that he tossed out there. You hold a sound doctrine. You homeschool. Your family integrated. You labor for my namesake. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. It's real sobering when. Son shared that with me. I don't know. I'm just putting it out here for simply the Lord wants to put out here. Should we not be careful? Isn't that the purpose of this? Surely the purpose is not that not only that we would be there in the place that the Church of Ephesus was and, and have to have this said to us. Surely it's that we might take warning. When we get down to verse 7, it's he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I just wonder, I'm just kind of wondering out loud on paper here. So I'm going to let you wonder with me. If the Lord wanted to get a return to your first love message to us, if we needed it, how would he do that? Would we be listening? Something to think about. Maybe now, maybe later. The Lord brings it to your mind. I tremble a little bit at this, but Some of you have probably already heard me share this on a just a one-on-one kind of basis. I was a part of a church. How would it be? Roughly twenty five years ago when this happened. Nobody got up and read verse four. It was other ways, the message to get across. But over a period of time, as I recall, best as I can recall, it went on for about a year. You know, a message here, message there. Various ways. Sometimes people visiting, even from, you know, another church, coming by, and you know, a guest speaker. In that year, we had both from within and without. The occasional message that was basically for for us at the time, at church. This this was basically the message. We we'd started with a, you know, with excitement. I mean, there was a there was a an actually an outpouring, a revival that was, was very stirring and brought a lot of people to the Lord from a wide area. Some of them having no fellowship ended up kind of (laughs) coming back. This was in Anderson, Indiana, 25 years ago. Lots of excitement, wonderful fellowship, camaraderie, you know, growing in the Lord, you know, studying His Word, listening to good messages. But at some point, it was slow, it was... Kind of, adrift kind of a drift and kind of at the same time, we we're still doing all those things. We're doing our works, our labors. But there was some, there was a heart. There was coldness, and there was a substitute for it. In our case, the thing that most stands out was a love of entertainment. Various sorts. For some, it could be playing cards or a board game. It could, some, it could be, Boy, uh, well, I tell you, they were we loved our basketball. <laughs> we really loved our basketball. You know, bodily exercise profits a little. Sure. We need that. A total lack of it is not a good thing, actually. So that's, that's not what I'm referred to referred to a heart issue because that's what the Lord was referring to. He began to bring messages that were basically saying for the last 10 years, this was about 10-year period of time since the birth of the church, I've poured into you teaching, solid biblical teaching, encouragement, a lot of fellowship daily, a lot of cases. A lot of people live nearby. And basically, the word was, "Now it's time for you to be poured out. I have work for you to do." To cut, to cut to the quick here, just how it happened, I don't know. It was twenty-five years ago, but there just became to be a sense that. There was a corporate. So some yes, some no. But basically, there was the, the general, the corporate response was, "No, we like it this way. Like what's happening. You know, we enjoy the mix of of uh, you know neat fellowship, you know great church services and uh, and basketball, board games, and yeah." You know. Heart issue I'm talking about. So <clears throat> outcome. Or else I will come quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. I can tell you, brothers and sisters, that there was a time when it it felt like it, I, I can't remember a moment. It was just that kind of at some point you become aware that. Where did he go? You know, relating to Israelites in the wilderness, where's the cloud? He moved. We're still camped out. Death. Within a relatively short period of time, thankfully, the elders recognized it. It was hard, really hard, but they they acknowledged it to themselves. And... And uh, in a gentle way, said, let's, uh, let's stop meeting for the summer and let's just pray, see what the Lord would do. Just a personal experience here, a, a sickening one. I'm just saying, it happens. You can't say no to God. Not individually, not corporately. Today, if you hear His voice. Don't harden the heart. Verse 6. It's interesting that after such a difficult verse, verse 5, the Lord has additional combination for the church at Ephesus. The Nicolaitans were a heretical sect within the church. They apparently taught that spiritual liberty allowed them to practice idolatry and immorality. An early church father, Irenaeus, later identified the Nicolaitans as a Gnostic sect, at least by by that time. I think that was maybe the second century, or at least right at the end of the first. So, be warned the Nicolaitan doctrine is still with us today, with different names and different forms. In any way that where it's viewed as, well, you know, I'm a believer, I'm okay. You know, I can, I've got my liberty. That's the same root doctrine, a doctrine of demons. The Ephesian church is. Commended for taking a stand against his teaching and their deeds. So, after this strong rebuke, rebuke in verse 5 and a call to repentance, the Lord, and this is just like the Lord, he encourages the, the uh, Ephesians. and he's trying to draw them to his side. He's saying, You hate that that I hate. You know, you're with me on this. Come on. He wants them to come through the test. He's interceding for them, isn't he? Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. Hebrews seven twenty five. Even while the Lord is speaking this difficult word, he's interceding for them. And dear ones, he would be interceding for you if you find that individually you are in this kind of position. The Lord also makes clear, though, in this way, in verse six, that He's not calling for a setting aside of their labor and their patience. He's not saying, "You know, I know your works, your labor, your patience, but I don't care about any of that. You just need to love me." No, that's not what he said. it's not like that. He's actually adding an additional combination, com- commendation to that that they are with it on this matter of Nicolaitans, being, he wants them to remain sharp, on guard, and not let such a thing enter the church. Let us remain diligent as well to keep the church pure and to test those who self-proclaim themselves to be something they are not. In Luke 11.42, Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. It's another reminder that this isn't an either or, but it is a matter of priority. We must get the priority right. We must have and keep a single-minded devotion to Christ. And this is also an example that true love for Christ does not make one soft toward evil. But isn't it also true from this text that being hard-nosed toward various evils, being sharp to see them, does not mean one is a true lover of Christ. They were doing that. The Lord acknowledged it. But they had left their first love. We must get this one right. So in verse 7, common in all these letters, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. might add that at this point, he's saying what the Spirit is saying to the churches. In fact, this book is going to all the churches. Each one of these letters is directed to an individual church, but all the churches will see all these so as we move through here, all of them were to be alert to, to hearing what the Spirit is saying. We're one of the churches. Let us be careful to listen to what he says. And to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And isn't this really the matter, the, the, the very issue here? Life. Life. Does one have the life of God without the love of God? (laughs) So, eating from the tree of life, abiding in Christ, that's where we must be, individually and corporately. Have you grown cold? Return to your first love. Run. Run after him. Don't wait. Maybe as we've been looking at this passage, maybe you're wondering, seems like I've always been cold. if you can't even remember from where you've fallen, if you can't remember and relate to the Scripture in Jeremiah, too, where it was fresh, the love of a bride, devotion, life, love. Maybe you're kind of like a dead branch hanging around branches. What happens when the wind blows hard? You just be a dead branch on the ground, ready for the woodpile. You don't have to remain there. These are some words from a hymn Come to this fountain, so rich and sweet. Cast thy poor soul the Savior's feet. Plunge in today and be made complete. Down at the cross, that's where it's at. There to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to his name. Why do you wait? Plunge in today and be made complete. May the Lord stir our hearts according to his desire. And may we run after him individually and corporately.